0: Our reading today comes from Genesis chapter 16, and we're going to read verse 1 to 16, and that can be found on page 11 of the Church Bibles. And uh, while you're turning there, just a reminder that if anybody would like prayer after the service, then there's an opportunity to do that through in the small cafe um, after the service. Um, so just to mention that. So we're going uh, page 11 on the Church Bibles, uh, chapter 16, uh, verse 1 to 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian service, ser- servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Well, if you'd like to keep that passage open in front of you, and we'll look at it together. And as we do that, let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the time that we have to gather around it now. And we pray that as we do, that you're... That you would minister to us by your Holy Spirit that we would see you more clearly as we spend time in this now and we pray these things in Jesus name amen well I wonder how are you at handling a mess uh, on the whole I like to think I'm a fairly tidy person I like things to be in order if I'm going to relax. Um, But uh, I've learned over the years that that's not always possible. Um, uh, Certain uh, moments in in life, particularly when uh, the kids were younger and you heard the Lego box turning over as the Lego hit the ground, was a moment that I had to learn to handle. Uh, When we decided to get a dog a few years ago, I I made one condition that we got a dog that didn't shed any hair. Um, And we ended up with a, a Labrador. Uh, So I have had to learn to handle uh, the mess in our house. Uh, A part of that is recognizing that however messy things might get, normally things can be tidied up. And sometimes I just need to get over myself. Now, cleaning up after the dog is one thing, but there's another kind of mess that isn't so easy to clean up. Sometimes there's the mess that we make of our lives a mess that that no amount of cleaning will sort a mess that can have consequences not just for our lives but for the lives of others people can live with guilt and shame anger uh, and bitterness for years over mess that they have caused or mess that they have suffered at the hands of others uh, and that can be true for us as christians as well sometimes The mess that we make can cast a long, dark shadow over our lives, stealing our joy in the Lord and impairing our ability to live our lives for Him. Even though we might know we're forgiven, even though we might live with that sure and certain hope uh, that we will be uh, in heaven one day, the shadow of, of shame over past mess can keep us from serving wholeheartedly in the present but is there a mess that is too much for God's mercy? A shame that's too shameful. A depth that we can sink to that God cannot reach. Well, not according to the passage that we're looking at today. Things don't get much messier than the incident that we read about here in Genesis 16. And yet in the midst of all the mess, God's mercy shines through. If you look with me at verse 1, now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne no children. So at the beginning of this passage, we are reminded of the fact that despite God's promise of a nation, Sarai was still childless. Now it's been a couple of weeks since we were last in this book. So just a reminder that in Genesis, Chapter 15, in verse 4, God had made a very specific promise to Abraham that his very own son would be his heir. That meant that his wife, Sarai, would give birth to a baby boy. But time had passed, and still there was no sign of a pregnancy. And even allowing for a slower aging process at that time, Sarai was no spring chicken. And evidently, she had grown tired of waiting. She'd lost faith in God's promise. And so she decides to take matters into her own hands. Verse 1. Now, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abraham, Behold, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, to our years, Sarah's Sarai's plan sounds scandalous on so many levels, doesn't it? But, but at that time, it would have been a fairly common practice amongst certain cultures to go down that route in situations like the one that Abraham and Sarai found themselves in. The problem was that it wasn't the route that God wanted them to go down. Sarai formed her plan without seeking God. Despite God's promise to Abraham, she had come to the conclusion that God, notice, had prevented her from having children and that her situation wasn't going to change. So she took matters into her own hands instead of having faith in God's promise. And when we do that, when we fail to trust God and we go off in our own direction, that never ends well. And it certainly didn't in this case. Her solution to their childlessness was to offer up her Egyptian servant Hagar to provide an heir. Now the fact that Hagar was Egyptian, that ought to set the alarm bells ringing for us. If you remember the reason that Hagar was, was, was in their home, it was because she was provided by, by Pharaoh back in chapter 12 when, when Abram and Sarai went down to Egypt. That, that whole uh, sorry episode merely ended in disaster after Abram passed Sarai off his sister and she was taken into Pharaoh's harem. It was another occasion where Abram had failed to trust God. And here, years later, the same mistake was being repeated. Failure to trust God resulted in folly. Folly that caused enormous harm to all involved, not least to Sarai's servant, Hagar. Now, if you read through this account, you will notice that not once did Abram or Sarai refer to Hagar by name. She's only referred to them as the servant. She was no more than an object to them, to be used as they saw fit. She had no say in Sarai's plan. Sarai in no way gave consideration to Hagar. There's no sense of intimacy here, of love. Sarai's instruction to Abram was simply to go in to Hagar, to carry out the act in order to produce an heir. Sarai was a body, nothing more, and any baby would belong to Sarai. What was being proposed was a total violation of Hagar. She was simply a servant there to be used as far as Sarai was concerned. And shamefully, Abram, he went along with the plan, verse 2, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Abraham should have known better. After all, he was the one who had heard God's promise of a son. But instead of having faith in God's promise and having nothing to do with Sarah's solution, he passively went along with the plan. The Hebrew used in this verse only appears in one other place in the Bible. And that is right back at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam passively goes along with Eve's decision to eat the fruit. And in both cases, what we need to understand is that passivity is complicity. Failure to take a stand against wrongdoing made Abraham complicit in all that followed. And in fact, it could be argued that Abraham was even more at fault than Sarai, because he was the one who had actually heard the voice of God. He was the one that had received the promise of God directly. He had witnessed God's covenant commitment to him in chapter 15 as, as God walked between the severed animals. He had even more reason than Sarai to hold fast to God's promise of an heir. But instead, despite past faithfulness on this occasion, he was faithless. This is another reminder to us that that God's people, uh, they don't always get it right. That past faithfulness doesn't guard against future failure. And that's why it's so important that we don't become complacent, that we continually seek God's face in the decisions that we make. Abraham failed to do that. Uh, And that failure had terrible consequences. We read verse three. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. So Moses, the writer of Genesis, he reminds us again that that Sarai was instrumental in all this. In fact, the verbs used here, they echo the verbs used in Genesis chapter three, just as Eve did with the fruit. Sarah took and gave to her husband. Only Sarah didn't take and give fruit, she took and gave Hagar. And just like Adam, Abram was complicit. This Egyptian servant was, was passed around with no saying it at all. It's harrowing stuff. And the consequences were devastating. Sarai longed for a child, but rarely has the phrase, be careful what you wish for, been more apt. We read verse four, and when she, that's Hagar, saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Hagar may have been treated as an object by Abraham and Sarai. She may have been no more than a body to them, just a servant there to fulfill their ends but she was a human being made in the image of God, with a soul, with emotions, just like them. And her overriding emotion was one of contempt towards her mistress. Contempt for the way that she had been treated, probably. But specifically, notice her contempt was for Sarai. Hagar had conceived Sarai had not. And Hagar, the servant, looked down on her barren mistress with disdain. No doubt wrongs had been committed against her, but now she too was guilty of sin towards Sarai, of of bitterness and hostility. And Sarai, she just couldn't handle it, verse 5. Sarai said to Abraham, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So Sarai was furious. And she blamed Abraham. Her plan hadn't worked out the way that she wanted it to. And her response was to pin it on her husband. Now, what are we meant to make of that? Why was Sarai so quick to to blame Abraham for something that was her idea? Well, trauma, in this case, Sarai's trauma, exposes dysfunction. We just need to think back to the way that that Abraham had treated Sarai as an object in Egypt. What does something like that do to a relationship? Could it be that, that bitterness for past failures on Abraham's part was uh, exposed in the midst of this traumatic incident. When we experience trauma or we are affected by other people's trauma, it can bring things to the surface that were were perhaps there all along, but they just hadn't been exposed. So that may have been part of what was going on. But there's another sense in which Sarai was absolutely right to blame Abraham. Abraham had failed in his role as a husband. He had been given the responsibility to lead his family, and he had failed to. He had been passive and went along with Sarai's plan when he should have known better. God had clearly revealed his plan for descendants to Abraham, and Abraham should have called Sarai back to that. His failure to disagree with his wife's course of action meant that he was ultimately responsible. But sadly, Abraham still failed to learn his lesson. Confronted with Sarai's anger, he washed his hands of Hagar, verse 6. But Abraham said to Sarai, "'Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please.'" As part of Sarai's plan, Abraham had taken Hagar as a wife, but he still couldn't bring himself to call her by name. As far as Abraham was concerned, she was still Sarai's servant. He abdicated his responsibility for Hagar and left her to the mercy of his wife. And Sarai had no hesitation in putting the boot in. We read verse 6, then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. Now, the word used there to describe Sarai's harsh treatment of Hagar is the same word used to describe the Egyptian slave master's treatment of the Jews in the book of Exodus. We are meant to understand that Sarai's treatment of Hagar was nothing short of abuse. It was so bad that a pregnant Hagar fled for her home country of Egypt, risking her life and the life of her baby. Such a damning picture, isn't it? God's call to Abraham had been to be a blessing to the nations. But now here was a pregnant Egyptian woman fleeing the people of God because of the heart's Harsh treatment that she was receiving at their hands. Instead of being a blessing, they were a curse. Nobody in this tragic incident comes out of it well. Sarai's scheming and harsh treatment of Hagar. Abraham's abdication of his responsibilities. Hagar's contempt. The whole situation is a, a total mess. And it all came from a failure to trust God's promise, a failure to remain faithful. Friends, this is where sin, where faithlessness leads. We may think we know best, we may think we can ignore God's word and it won't have any negative consequences for our lives. But there is nothing good that comes from ignoring God's will. So much mess. So much pain and regret would be avoided if we would just trust that God knows what's best for us. I wonder, right now, are you engaging in something that you know is against God's will? But you're doing it anyway, because you think you know better, because it feels good. Or are you passively watching someone getting away with evil? when you could be doing something about it. Well, take this passage as a warning of of where that kind of attitude leads, and look to God as the one who gives mercy in every situation, because the great hope amidst all the brokenness of this passage is that God is a God who is merciful to his people, even in the mess. And that's what we see in the rest of this passage. If you look with me at verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. So Hagar encounters the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appears at various points in the Old Testament, and we're meant to understand that he is a representative of God. His words are God's words. And we're told that that he found Hagar on the way to Shur. Now, Shur was very close to Egypt, so, so Hagar had almost made it back home. She had traveled a long way. And then the angel of the Lord asks her a question, and I want us to notice something that is incredibly beautiful about the question that he asks. Notice how he begins. He begins with her name. He calls her by name. The first person in this whole passage to name Hagar is God himself. Hagar had been depersonalized, mistreated, used, and abused by Abraham and Sarai. She'd been made to feel worthless, nothing more than a warm body for making babies. But God called her by name. He knew her. He saw her. When we're abused or mistreated or rejected by others, that can make us feel worthless. can leave us feeling isolated and alone. But friends, if you have put your faith in Jesus, then know this. God sees you. He knows you. He's with you. He cares deeply for you. And He invites you to trust in him, to trust that he will work out his good purposes in you, even in the darkest of circumstances. And that's exactly what he did with Hagar. He called her, verse 8, to return to Sarai, to fulfill her role as a servant in her household, something that no doubt would have been an incredibly difficult thing to do. But it's a call that comes with a promise A promise that that through her son would come a great nation. That she was to call him Ishmael, which means God hears. Her son's name would be a daily reminder to her that her mistreatment hadn't gone unnoticed by God. He also gives details of the kind of person that her son would be. Someone who would live in hostility towards others. And Ishmael's descendants would play a significant part in opposing God's people from then on. The consequences of Abraham's sin were far-reaching. And God's promise to Hagar meets with a unique response, verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Now, this is the only time in the Bible where a human being gives a name to God. It's a name that sums up exactly how Hagar viewed God as the one who saw her. He saw her affliction. He saw her pain. And he met her in the midst of it. And the passage ends with the birth of of Hagar's son. We read verse 15, and Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram, he names the baby Ishmael in accordance with the angel of the Lord's instruction. And that sign of obedience by Abram ends the chapter on a hopeful note, that despite his faithlessness, Despite the darkness of this chapter, God wasn't finished with Abraham. God was merciful in the mess. And if he was merciful to Hagar, and if he was merciful to Abraham and Sarai, then how much more will he be merciful to his people today? You see, all of us have mess in our lives. All of us have moments of darkness and shame and brokenness. Maybe there have been times where we have been hurt or times where we have caused hurt to others. But the overriding message of this passage and the overriding message of the Bible is that our mess isn't the end. God is merciful to his people even in the mess. You see, years later, another young mother would flee to Egypt to avoid persecution by a hostile ruler who should have known better. And her son would grow up to live not as a wild donkey of a man in hostility to others, but as the Lamb of God who would endure hostility from others so that we could know God's mercy. On the cross, Jesus bore the punishment for every mess that we have ever made, for every sin that we have ever committed, so that we could know the mercy and the grace of our heavenly Father. Through his death, he cleanses his people, not just of the sins that they've done, but also of the sins that have been done to them, so that they can know that in their pain, God sees them. He hears them. He knows them. And He loves them. And He has promised a glorious eternal future where all our pain, all our shame, all our sadness, all our mess will be wiped away once and for all. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you that you are a God who is merciful in the mess. Lord, as we look at the the car crash of this passage and just so much brokenness and pain, so much sin and, and wrongdoing, and yet, Lord God, out of that brokenness, your mercy shines through. And Lord, we praise you that 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 is true in our own lives as well. That there is nothing, no darkness that is too dark, no shame that is too shameful, nothing that the, the mercy and grace of your Son has not dealt with on the cross. Lord, we pray that as we lift our eyes to you as we look to you in all our circumstances, in all the difficult situations that we might face, that you would remind us of your grace, that you would remind us that you see us, that you know us, that you hear us when we cry to you. Lord, as we come uh, to this table to take bread and wine now, we pray that you would strengthen us by your Spirit as you remind us again of your faithfulness to us in your Son, Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.